Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Make the offer. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Aaron Peretti. Aaron is the author of Today's Innovator. He's an innovation expert with 17 years of experience innovating in complex organizations. Aaron views innovation not as an activity, but as a core business competency that must be developed, led, and nurtured within both the individual and the organization. Aaron has spoken at numerous conferences on topics related to technology trends, innovation leadership, innovation strategy, and culture change. A former chief innovation officer at Transamerica, Aaron is also an expert in technology trends and their impacts on people and business. Through his company, Today's Innovator, and his writing, Aaron's mission is to connect and empower the innovators found within each of us. Aaron and I talk about his journey as a data scientist, innovator, and leader. We explore some of his lessons and insights regarding innovation. We dig deep into leadership, organizational culture, and people challenges that impede innovation. It was great having Aaron on the podcast. I thank him for his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. Aaron, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. If uh, you don't mind, could you tell me and our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, I got my career started at Capital One in the late 1990s. Um, I was recruited to Capital One because I was a mathematician by trade who did not want to go into academic, uh, academic pursuits to, to further understand math. I mean, that's exactly the type of person Capital One was looking for. It was the engineer who didn't want to go to engineering, the statistician who didn't want to do hardcore statistics, or the, uh, the mathematician who didn't want to do math. And they were recruiting from all over the country. And I didn't realize at the time how lucky I was to step into that environment, which is, to this day, the most entrepreneurial and innovative environment that I was ever part of uh, in, my, in my work career. My position at Capital One was what today would be known as a data scientist. Uh, that term was not really there back then, but we were inventing how do you do credit card analytics and what types of data structures do you need? What types of queries do you need? And how do you model and, and apply the insight that you're gaining from your data? It was the first experience I really had with innovation. We didn't use the term and that's maybe something we can explore yeah. down the line here, but I, I it's funny. Funny thing about innovation is that the most innovative companies don't use the word. It's it's redundant, right? You're not going to find an innovation manager in Amazon or at Tesla. They just don't. They're not needed because everyone's doing it, and that's the condition we had at Capital One. I was there for seven and a half years in a variety of, of roles, including a six month stint on an innovation team, where I got introduced to the discipline of innovation. So to that point, I thought it was maybe an outcome. Right, it was you were trying to build an innovation, or maybe I thought it was a, uh, you know, a, a process which some people would say let's innovate and you'd have a meeting, but really it, I, I was awoken to the fact that it's a broad business competency. Right, it's this discipline that you can train, that you can you can build, and I took that with me in my later career pursuits. I did a startup gig and I was, uh, you know jack-of-all-trades trying to innovate there and then I landed at a sleepy stuffy insurance company which in Iowa people <laughs> may know as Transamerica at the time it was called Aegon uh, it still is called Aegon it's an it's a multinational company by the name of Aegon um, I joined that company a financial services company just before the global financial crisis and it was a very stressful time um, I was hired in a, in a kind of a product oriented role try to build new products new programs 
the word innovation wasn't being used, but it was for a different reason than at Capital One. So at Capital One, the word innovation wasn't used because they were a mature innovation organization. At Transamerica, it wasn't used because they didn't know how to innovate. Right? It just wasn't in the, the vernacular, it wasn't in the strategy. So I started to introduce it slowly and we, made, we weathered the storm of the global, global financial crisis. And on the other end of that, we started to grow and grow our innovation competency as a company. And I grew in my career along with that, um, found myself climbing the corporate ladder very rapidly up to uh, a chief innovation officer role that I served there for a number of years, um, as well as a chief customer advocate role to try to blend the customer centricity uh, strategy with the innovation strategy and make sense right. of all that. Uh, and then I was a little burnt out, you know, after 20, almost 20 years of working in corporate, in the corporate world, I decided to step away. And that was in 2016. Since then, I've been trying to understand who I am as an innovator, who I am as a father, who I am as a person. Uh, you call it a midlife crisis, but it, you know, it's been fun. If it, <laughs> not, not much of a crisis. I had a chance to write a book a couple of years ago uh, called Today's Innovator. And that was really an opportunity to put on paper all of my innovation knowledge so that I could move on and continue to grow, um, continue to grow as an innovator. As, as an, uh, I love advanced technology now, too. So I, I study advanced technologies and how they are going to impact our world, which isn't too far removed from innovation. Um, this time last year, or actually earlier this year, I officially launched a business called Today's Innovator, which we now provide coaching, training, uh, workshop services, in, in, all in the domain of innovation. I try to stop short of calling it consulting because uh, <laughs> I want to continue to grow and work on the content and work on the business. And if I'm consulting full time, I don't have time to do that. So, Right. So I want to go back a little bit. So you started off, uh, like you said, math, math major and then did you know, kind of applied mathematics work before uh, going to Capital One. What was the interest in, in uh, math for you? It was just one of those weird turns in life, right? I had a, uh, a teacher in high school who I thought I didn't get along with. And uh, it was a math class. And I used to rush through the quizzes and turn them in, and she would get upset that I was a little sloppy in the work. Um, after one of those quizzes where I turned it in in record time, right? I, it was maybe three minutes. I did the whole thing. It was probably B-level work, right? She came over and put something on my desk, and it was face down, a piece of paper. And I flipped it over, and it was a logic puzzle. And I started working through the logic puzzle. And then this pattern repeated itself. And eventually, I got to know her. You know, I would stay after class and talk about the logic puzzle. She wasn't giving this treatment to anyone else, right? This was just me. And she said, at some point, you know, you're really good at this math stuff. You should, you should go into it. And there was actually a lesson to be learned there that all of the, the deductive reasoning I was using in these logic puzzles, I could have been using in my quizzes as well to try to get you know, the less sloppy, correct answers. And she taught me that lesson that, you know, you know everything you need to know. And it's just about exercise and practice. And that's the reason you go through these quizzes is not to, uh, not to learn, but to, to show that, you, that you've mastered the trade. And where you get stuck, you're able to deduce and do, this, do the logic to understand what the right answer should be. And I learned that lesson from her, and I just followed that path. Um, and it didn't lead me astray. So, you know, I just kept following. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and uh, want to dig in a little bit, too, with uh, the Capital One. Uh, I was curious because the different reasons why one might not use the word innovation, because it's, they're already in it, they're doing it, or... Um, Maybe they, they don't know it, right? The, the two extremes that you kind of talked about. But then it sounds like you were part of an innovation lab there at the end. What, what might have been that pivot to, to start labeling things innovation at Capital One? Yeah, the company had this entrepreneurial startup and certainly an entrepreneurial culture when I started in 1999. It was still a rather small company, but it was growing so fast. It was growing hundreds, if not thousands of employees a month were coming in and joining forces. And it very quickly, almost overnight, became a big company with big company problems. Uh, one of those being a regulatory uh, issue that stopped innovation in its tracks. And in order to start it back up again, they had to be very explicit about 
what was innovation and what was no longer innovation. Where were we trying to control for risk versus where were we try, trying to explicitly innovate? And yeah, that's a great, great that you picked up on that because I don't think I've ever really <laughs> explored why that was. Um, but yeah, it was just this need to start labeling things that were more risky uh, appropriately and saying, yes, this is where we're going to do the more risky things over here in this innovation lab. Especially right, in a highly regulated space, right? You know, like uh, finance and, and, and consumer, consumer uh, finance uh, being regulated. And I, I want to pick, and then talking about risk, because that is, that is like one of the biggest, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't mean to turn this into a therapy session for me, right? but one of the things, the challenges I think I have when I'm doing uh, work with clients on the innovation front is trying to tell them that I feel like the biggest thing we're trying to do is actually reduce risk, that it's a de-risking process where I think sometimes if they haven't been innovative, they want like, they, they want the, the magic trick, like just, yes. just get us the magic trick. <laughs> right? And uh, there's so much that goes into it. And, you know, uh, but I'm, I'm curious too about how, how you kind of sort out that almost the risk reward with innovation in, in the roles that you've had. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question. There's two ways I look at risk. Um, one from a leadership perspective and second from an innovation perspective. I'll start with the latter. You're, you're exactly right. Great innovation is about lowering risk and, and taking, it, gaining more insight to make more informed decisions, right? Yep. And the bigger you are as a company, the more money you can throw at that and the, the less risky your decisions become, right? Because you are validating your assumptions and your prototypes and your designs at every step along the way for a smaller company that doesn't have the resources at the time that is that risk is difficult to minimize and that's where I'd, I'd like to talk about the environment that leaders create and leaders can create an environment that is also low risk so that's the other way I think about risk innovation can be very scary particularly if you've never seen how an innovative culture an innovation innovative corporation or organization should operate this idea of innovating despite the way that your business runs is very scary right the reason you do innovation is because you need to achieve some result that your business is not on track to achieve right, right? so by definition it's risky you you need to try to produce some outcome that your organization doesn't typically produce so it's the job of the leader to create an environment that lowers the risk of taking risks inside of that organization so that's the other way I like, I like to think about risk. And that's the evolution I had as an innovator. In the front end, it was really about lowering the risk, the risk of my innovation as a failure. And the back end, it was about creating an environment where the employees didn't feel like they were taking risks in anything that they did. Yeah, right. In many ways, like almost providing air cover. Because uh, you said like in, in the large organizations or, or the way I was even processing talking about Capital One and, and that rapid growth is... Also with companies where you have sometimes you know, the, the stereotype for me is it's almost the entrepreneur that starts it, right? But as it grows, you need the operators to like basically squeeze efficiency out of the system. Or also uh, if I'm getting my timing right, right, Six Sigma was also really big, right? So it was about replicating performance, right? Where innovation is when you're doing a lot of experiments, there is failure. And if you're learning, you're going forward, but even that notion, the thought of failure or thought of sitting outside of what's accepted feels culturally dangerous. Right? And uh, that's my belief too, is that when people are in fear, they retreat to like old or safe practices. And so if innovation methods aren't part of your day to day, you're going to go heads down and just, just do the work that keeps you from getting fired, right? Rather than what are, what are the things that can actually expand the business going forward? But I love, I love that insight about what the leader needs to do to create an environment in which innovation can actually happen. Yeah, I, I think every leader, every great leader will have a coming of age moment where they, they recognize that, you know, it's the servant leadership model. I need to create this environment where the folks who I'm leading can step up and right. They can yep. spread their wings and become leaders in their own right. And I don't know, I'm not sure every leader ever gets there, right. But the, those who are in adaptive systems and want to su succeed in adaptive systems 
have to get there, right? They have to trust and build th that environment, that tight container where people can take risks. Right? Otherwise, you know, what's the, you're just a technical leader and you're trying to direct yeah. these, these really smart resources towards really complex problems and you're not going to be able to know what the right moves are. You have to trust them to do it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where I see, from my perspective, organizations get in trouble. You, like you said, complex and adaptive systems, right? And they they don't yield to previous best practices. Yet a lot of leaders grew up in a company, and it was, it still might have been complicated, but it was it was a tame problem. This is how we do it, and we know how long it takes. And sometimes when you have that type of leadership, then it's just more. Why haven't you guys produced a solution yet? It should only take us this long, right? Where. Uh, when you're dealing with a complex system and dealing with innovation, right? It's we we actually have to experiment to learn and mm -hmm. test, right? And and I think those are also that that learning and testing is a hard for me. It's a hard cultural barrier between kind of the the innovative systems versus the control systems that might exist in an organization. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Thankfully, I had that at Capital One right from day one. It was all test versus control. Everything we did, it was smart design of everything of every experiment that we put together. And like you said, failure was fine, right? It wasn't a culture of failure. It was a culture of experimentation. Um, when I got to Transamerica, that was my goal was to emulate some of those best practices inside of the innovation organization that I ran. And as a result, we had a very different culture inside one department at Transamerica than the rest of the organization. And people took notice and they, uh, they were very intrigued by what they saw, but also rubbed some people the wrong way because it's not, you know, it's, again, it's cut against the grain a little bit from a cultural perspective. Yeah. And um, a class that I'm teaching on innovation right now, like one of the big things we talked about just this morning in lecture was uh, we we're starting to bump up against cultural topics, which are actually a theme throughout the semester. But really, the the um, uh, Drucker notion that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and we were talking about and politics, and some of the conversations were coming up about uh, maybe those where things do become political. Because right? I and as background, I was showing them some data with like when talking to companies about innovation. One of the biggest reasons you see innovation programs struggling is politics or turf. And why, and so from your perspective, why do you think that cuts people the wrong way or what, why is it hard for people to collaborate? Yeah. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> There's a lot to that question. Yeah. Um, I'll share a story. <laughs> I was, I think the year was 2011 at Transamerica and I was asked, tapped on the shoulder to build out the sketch of what an innovation organization might look like in Transamerica. And it was small, it was modest, right? I kind of built it so that there was something that if I was chosen to be the one leading it, that I could handle. <laughs> right. So I, I built it really small. I said, yeah, it could be one person with three direct reports and we could change the culture and we could do all this stuff, right? Um, and I, you know, the self-fulfilling prophecy, I was, I got the job within a few months. You know, this, this little thing I designed, someone finally came and said, hey, would you like to actually do that role that you designed? I said, yes, I will be your chief innovation officer. At that time, it was just SVP of innovation or something like that. Um, I thought my job then was to throw on a lab coat, you know, metaphorically, to throw some beanbag chairs in some conference rooms and to start experimenting and prototyping, right, to truly innovate. And within three months of being on the job, I realized I, I was completely wrong, if not hoodwinked by someone, right? So someone had pulled, pulled a fast one on me when I realized the job was all about people and politics. And I had a great coach at the time who taught me lessons about collaboration being the key to overcoming all of this new stress that I was feeling around how do I negotiate, how do I manipulate the organization in order to serve the purpose of innovation that I was trying to build. Um, I had to learn how to collaborate with the other leaders in the organization. I had to learn how to recognize and invite their viewpoints into the process and not just on the surface level, but truly to value their input and build it into what we were doing as an organization. Um, and that, you know, that got me into the political game. So suddenly I, I found myself, 
in the, in the center of conversations about how our culture was changing or how our leadership culture needed to change or how were, were we rewarding our employees and were we saying we were innovative but not rewarding innovation, right? I was in the middle of all those conversations. I didn't anticipate any of that when I got that job. And <laughs> but collaboration was always the key and inviting people in who knew more about what they were doing than I did. And from an ego perspective, that was always difficult for me. I think it is for a lot of great innovators. You, you know, the romantic notion of the innovators is lone genius who goes into a, a corner room or a garage or a dorm room and produces some some wild innovation. You know, Mark Zuckerberg aside, that isn't how things happen. Yeah, the giant so, eureka uh, moment. Like I've I've I went off, I came back, and here's the solution. Yeah, so I I was trying to live to that, but it, you know, I quickly realized that it was about an organization trying to answer some tough problems, solve some tough business problems innovatively. And so innovation became a quality, not a quest. So whenever we were solving a business problem, it was my job to ask how innovative do we want the solution to be? And then to answer that question with the stakeholders. And so they might say, yeah, I want it to be better than the competition or you know, it has to beat this on price or it has to look like this and feel like this. And these are our design standards. So I got, I started to just learn the language of how do you collaborate? How do you negotiate and, and how do you set a strategic direction from an innovation perspective? But just trial by fire, right? I don't think there's yeah. any courses that'll teach you all of that. No, no. And actually one of the early lessons we have in our class right now is uh, defining innovation and, uh, really trying to, trying to help students understand there is no textbook answer of what is innovation, right? And that where a lot of challenges seem to happen in organizations is people talking past each other because I have a mental model of what I think innovation is. Somebody else has a, a mental model and then, and a lot of times everything's messy. And again, it's almost that magic trick, right? That they're, they're looking and then when they come in and see, experiments and prototypes or failure it's like oh that's not what i was thinking innovation was going to be yeah. <laughs> and uh the, trying to trying to organize it and i'm trying to simplify it on growth and value is you know where where can you create value what type of value are you trying to create for the business for the customer what type of growth are we looking for you know like what what area and also even those confusion between uh you know, like what McKinsey might call the three horizons, but some stuff that is just almost protect the core. This first horizon is this, are we just trying to do what we're doing better? And there's a lot of space for innovation there, right? Or is it, mm -hmm. are we trying to do new markets, new capabilities, new features that are going to revolutionize the space? And even, even those, I feel like not even having those conversations up front are hard because it, it, having those kind of makes people stop and I get, Oh, this is what I'm looking for in innovation or this is what we're hoping to get out of it. And trying to get people on the same page is, uh, and I think of myself as a people person, but it can be exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but that's a lot of the hard work that has to go in to set that table. Right. Yeah. And for an introverted math guy, <laughs> It was really very challenging. And uh, I like to say I had some great coaches along the way, but I also had some handlers. I had some, some extroverted people who had a, their finger on the pulse of the organization who told me what to say and what not to say at any given time. So I had a lot of help along the way at, at succeeding. And hopefully I returned the favor in yeah. some respects. Yeah, and, and going from uh, Capital One during that and then Transamerica, there's, there's another highly regulated space as well. Um, so did you have to, with the innovation lab, did that need to be seen and reported as, as separate or innovative or is it a little different business model there? At Transamerica, it was, the, the original objective was to build a culture of innovation. So really to get innovation everywhere in the way that we were thinking, particularly from some of the operational challenges we were facing. Um, a lot of, the solution set at, at Transamerica was often just throw more resources at it. Um, a lot of operational resources, pushing paper. It was amazing to me how many manual processes there were. And when those processes got overwhelmed, we would just throw more people at it. And the idea of innovation everywhere was, you know what, that's the recognition that that's not the right approach to solve those problems, that there's got to be a better way. The incentive structure didn't exist for an employee who was 
suffering through some operational nightmare to actually resist or, or, or cut against the grain, to use my term from before, yeah. to propose a solution that might actually eliminate their own job, right? So their, their incentive structure was to keep pushing these papers through and to do as many as they can. And if they said, you know what, this is all manual, and a guy with an Excel spreadsheet could do this my entire job in a minute, that's, there's no incentive for that, right? right? So you have to start to build the cultural incentives and that takes time. It's not going to happen overnight, but that was the original charge at Transamerica. So it wasn't even about building a lab. We weren't ready day one. Uh, I thought that's what it was about, but I was wrong, right? I, I knew within three months I was wrong. There was a change management process that we had to go through. It was preparing the organization for change, starting to talk about innovation, starting to address some of the fears that associates had with respect to innovation, whether that was job reduction or the fear of the unknown, like not knowing how to innovate. And certainly if you're going to say this is now valued and you haven't trained your organization on how to do it, right. that's a scary step as well. Um, so we had to do that. We had to build that, that change readiness. We had to create an environment where people felt supported in both leaders and employees feel supported in, in how they're going to change themselves and ultimately then provide them the know-how to change. So that was like a three-year process before we fully launched a lab. It took three years. Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, that's such great insight too, I think, to, again, like for the, the hard part for, for folks is, is just want, wanting those results. And if you don't have the, the structure and infrastructure, physical and human resource, right? That the way we think about this, the way we might do that, and the way we might even experiment because uh, I was kind of curious too, because you also have a customer experience or customer advocate background too. And uh, this is from another insurance company, the story, but uh, see how it, how it uh, kind of aligns with your experience. But one of my, one of my friends was working in the CX space and uh, she had come up with, because there's, there's a lot of inside out language from insurance companies and like it's hard for for the customer to really understand what is this benefit? What am I getting? Uh, and there was a job done to actually simplify explaining basically the, the product and the benefits. And uh, it wasn't seen as valuable to help the customer, but what sold the project was that it actually reduced the paper that would need to be sent out, which reduced the staple. So they were able to justify it based on an operational, not, not that it might make your customer happier, might make them more confident about using your product, but it, you know, there was even that operational mentality that uh, if all things would be equal, we won't do that. But since it's saving staple and paper, all right, we'll, we'll do that. And so kind of curious on how you also bring in that customer uh, insight, which is critical to innovation, but how you bring that into an organization that is usually based on folklore, we've always done it this way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew from my time as the innovation, chief innovation officer that it wouldn't be a full pendulum swing. I knew there was, <laughs> there was work to be done to introduce the idea of customer centricity and customer advocacy, customer insight, customer immersion. These were all new concepts and the value was not yet understood. There was common understanding that there is value there was value to be had but no one knew how to extract the value from that rock right um and what i what i witnessed in that instance which i didn't see with innovation was there was a lot more comfort with the leadership to start to build customer centricity and customer advocacy into every part of the organization with, with the innovation charge, that felt very difficult and very challenging. But once we started talking about customer centricity, we saw it pop up everywhere. There were little sparks of customer centricity everywhere. I think it's more relatable and more accessible to particularly line-level employees that are, that are dealing with customers every day. That's the message they want to hear. So there was a, a lot less resistance, but in some respects, it was more ambiguous, right? What are we actually trying to accomplish with customer centricity? To your point, the decision structures didn't change. Right. We would say things like we want the customer to have a seat in every meeting, right? We actually would have a chair in some meetings saying the customer's there, right. make sure they have a voice, right? Um, but that, 
it didn't change the way we made decisions. Ultimately, though, the, the most customer-centric organizations will. Right. right. And I saw it happening in some of the newer, the, the digital development work that we were doing. I saw, I saw us putting the customer first. I saw us doing user experience design, customer experience design, um, gathering, closing feedback loops with customers and truly making a better experience for them. Uh, and then I chose to leave. And <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wish I had seen more because I think the company was maturing very quickly in that respect and was starting to build that muscle and build that competency. Well, that's a, a good transition to, because I wanted to start talking a little bit more about today's innovator uh, and kind of what you've been doing there. And I, one of the uh, or kind of two of the big words that you use with today's are connecting and empowering and just want to uh, I can see the threads but if you if you don't mind talking about why that's important to you or why you think that's important to help today's innovator on connecting and empowering yeah one of the most powerful TED talks I ever watched was Stephen Johnson's where do good ideas come from and uh, I read the book as well yeah <laughs> And it's really kind of obvious, but you, it comes from collisions. It comes from being connected to people and ideas. Uh, the, this, again, this romantic idea of the lone genius, that's going to come, come around once in a lifetime, particularly now when the world's so complex. It's not, it, it may never, we may never see it again. But when you are able to build a high quality network, whether that's individually or for your company or for your team, and start to interact in different ways with that network, you get exposed to new ideas. You, you get challenged in your thinking. Um, you see new opportunities that you wouldn't have seen before. So the connection piece has to be at the beginning. Um, one thing, you know, those two words are very prominent in today's innovator. There's a word that's, that's intentionally not very prominent, and that's ideation. Right? You will not hear me or see me talking much about ideation or brainstorming. Those are useful things to do, but I don't equate innovation with ideators. I think the strongest innovators are truly connectors. They're people who connect people and ideas yeah. and, and are able to then make sense of the world uh, from, from the connections that they're making. That leads to empowerment. But as you, so anyone can connect from where they sit, right? You can, you can reach out to people, you can talk to people, you can expand your network, you can watch podcasts, you can you know, do whatever. You can do that from wherever you sit, but feeling empowered is very different, right? Feeling empowered need, requires someone to create an environment where you start to feel more empowered. Um, and innovation requires empowered employees. And I learned very early on that there was no magic wand that I could wave. I couldn't say, Matt, you're empowered. Go do this. Right. Until you personally had the confidence, which in many respects came from your connections. It came from the patterns of behavior that you're seeing modeled. It came from, you know, confidence comes from a lot of places. Generally, for someone to feel empowered, they're not doing superhuman things. They're doing things they could do all along, but didn't feel like they could take the risk to do. And, that, and that's the empowering environment. It's when you can start to spread your wings and, and do all of those things that you could have done all along, but you weren't getting <laughs> rewarded or you weren't getting recognized or you weren't getting you know, challenged to do it. And that environment has to be built for innovation. And ultimately, if you build those two things, then you can start thriving from an innovation perspective. And that's what today's innovator is all about is who does the innovator need to be and how do you go from connecting to empowered to thriving? That's great. And also just a quick note on, on Stephen Johnson. Uh, to, yeah, it's a great, great talk and, and the book. And that's, that's one of the ideas I wish more people could appreciate is the notion of the slow hunch, right? Rather mm -hmm. than, yeah, is it's, it's building these things over time. And when you're talking about the empowered employee and empowering folks, in, in some ways that when you were saying that I was getting a, a little bit of Wizard of Oz kind of, uh, right, but telling Dorothy, she had the power all along, right? But, yeah. but giving, giving the tools and the support to actually make that happen, that's a different story. But she, she had the power all along. Is it's, it's tough both for, for the individual, the team, and the organization to know. And I, I think that's a hard part for organizations as well is that uh, it's – it's most, most of their wounds are self-inflicted too, right? It's, yeah. 
they're they're doing things that they have control over, right? So not not only could they do more positive things, but the things that are uh, negative or seen as negative are actually self-inflicted. Yeah, I had uh, one of the best lessons I ever learned. I had an employee who was a strong connector, right? He was great at building the ideas and things and, and connecting them all and creating these new concepts. But he and I were both getting very frustrated that his leading concept, the best thing he had conceived of was not getting built. It wasn't just simply was not getting operationalized. And eventually I let him off the hook a hundred times. And I, I said, maybe we'll just do more research and suddenly someone will run with it and build it. Or maybe we will uh, present it again at a different yeah. meeting and someone will, somewhere will run with it. In the end, it was as simple as telling him, Hey, can you have it built by August 1st? Or asking the question, right? That's all it took. And then when I asked him that question, can you build this by August 1st? He said, oh, yeah, I think I could. And it got done, right? It wasn't superhuman. (laughs) It's just, yeah, we were shooting ourselves in the foot. We didn't have the culture to build that empowering environment. That That model of behavior of someone making an offer uh, building something, taking a risk, experimenting didn't exist. So how was he to know that that's what was expected? How was I to know? I hadn't seen it. So yeah, that was an incredible lesson that day. And that, that kind of changed me a lot of, there were a lot of moments that changed me as a leader, but that was one where I started to issue more challenges and give it, give people more direction. That's great. What, uh, what is your goal for today's innovator? What are you, what are you hoping to accomplish? A little, in some respects, it's an experiment. Um, allows me to dabble in a lot of things, which allows me to not answer that question. <laughs> um, I want to continue to build innovation expertise, not only for myself, but for the community of innovators that we are building. I think that's the ultimate goal is will people become stronger innovators because they interacted with today's innovator? Uh, I want that answer to be yes. But that leaves it wide open, right? So what are the things that we're doing? How are we building that innovation muscle? Which sectors are we talking to? That's wide open. And and in many respects, I'm following passion. I'm following interests and uh, being a a small shop of one employee plus, you know, a part-time employee gives me that freedom to follow pursuits that, that truly interest me. I know another area of interest for you is uh, kind of futurist and also future technology. Uh, is there any technology right now that's you're finding incredibly exciting or is it more a blend on how all these emerging technologies might come together? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the latter. And I think that's where the innovation really comes from is when you, you take two of these domains of technology advances say artificial intelligence versus drone technology and you crash them together right what does an artificially intelligent drone look like or what can it do you start imagining the possibilities and they're endless right what if you combine that with blockchain technology all right so the drones now surveying stuff and making a record of it and it's preserving the record forever right if you add haptic technology right now you suddenly have a pilot who's piloting this drone it also has artificial intelligence right and you start blending all these things together and our world's becoming so complex, so fast, so rapidly that it's, even when I spend, you know, four or five hours a day looking at advanced, te- at advanced technologies, I still find myself behind. And I look back at my time in the corporate environment where I was inside of these four walls and I very rarely got exposed to the outside world. I realized what an opportunity I missed to get connected to the technology advances that were going on outside of our four walls. So I'm hoping I can bring some of that into the engagements that I have through today's innovator. So it's not just about building the innovation muscle and coaching and training, but it's about inspiring on on possibilities. So, you know, where is the world going and, and how can each organization or team or person that I'm working with meet the world where it's going? Yeah, that that super like you said the almost that super collider of ideas and you know just even asking some of those questions what what does what does this look like if X and Y are combined uh, seeing these two different things and how might that impact 
you know, our organization or what might, uh, what opportunities might present themselves. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting too. It's talking about or thinking about a more complex world, at least, it, you know, more of the movement to from like closed systems or closed innovation to open innovation and that it's, impossible for one company to stay on top of all the technology all the ideas and so how can you you start to look at what else is being built out there and and sometimes be innovative you don't have to build it yourself right it might be how you how you deploy it yeah yeah i mean classic example right now is blockchain technology which is an incredible threat to the merchant networks of the credit cards because it essentially does the same thing and it's decentralized. So you almost don't need Visa and MasterCard anymore. But to your point, Visa and MasterCard are, are looking at this and saying, wow, how can I exploit this opportunity, right? How can I change my business model to leverage blockchain technology? Uh, so instead of seeing it as a risk, they're seeing it as potentially a big new opportunity area. And that's, that, that's really impressive to see that response. And that they're not trying to regulate blockchain out of existence, but instead they're trying to figure out how their business model ultimately changes and what their new company will look like on the other end of it. Switching gears a little bit on something that might not feel innovative, but I know a big area of interest for you is uh, summer camps and summer camp experience. Uh, Do you mind talking a little bit about what you're doing in that space? I'd love to. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's not ever (laughs) uttered in the same breath as innovation, right? Um, But now more than ever, now, this year, when so many camps across the country were canceled for the summer, if not entirely virtual, if not closed up for good, right? Um, innovation in the summer camp space is critical. And this, com- this gets into the domain of social design or social innovation. Being purpose-driven in the way that you are building the experiences for you know, whatever your purpose is, um, or being innovative and building the experiences for whatever purpose is can really set you apart and can deliver an experience which is almost otherworldly. And you think about the summer camp experience and I was one of these kids, but how many kids are become, you know, they grow up in these summer camps. Imagine if you can create an environment where that's intentionally designed, right? Where you're managing to some extent, the growth of these individuals as humans, you're managing the parents that, you know, you're setting great expectations with the parents and you're being very intentional about the values that you're bringing into these programs. I have the, the opportunity right now to work with a program out in New Jersey that's extremely in- innovative in the way that it's approaching summer camp program design. And it's focused on character values. And they've chosen, I, I believe, seven different character values. And each of the campers, when they come in, they get to choose a path. And then they get to follow that value path. And whether they're shooting archery or playing soccer, there's some connection to the, these value paths that they've chosen. And they're still having fun, but they're learning and they're becoming stronger in character at the same time. So I have this tr- tremendous passion for that type of work, which is transforming this transactional experience, this transactional almost daycare-like experience to something that is uplifting and empowering and can build future leaders. And, and there's a great need for it. Right? These camps need help. That, you, know, the, you don't go into summer camp, you don't go into summer camping to make money, right? So the people who are there are the people who truly love it, but they, they kind of lack the training to, to truly be innovative and cutting edge. And, and that might take someone like me to come in and challenge them a little bit and say, this is where you could go with this. Let's talk about the possibilities. So that's what I'm so, so excited about. Um, I'm working with the camp that I grew up going to in upstate New York right now to plan their 100th anniversary celebration for 2021. And it's, you know, it's a case study in innovation and customer experience design, right? We're gathering stakeholder requirements right now. We're, <laughs> we're building out design standards. We're trying to figure out how, how we can meet everyone's needs. What resources do we have to play with? Um, yeah, so it's just so fun. It's such a fun and rewarding place to apply the craft of innovation. Uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And for me personally, I've just I had, you know, I, as you're talking about that, reflecting back on some just incredibly powerful, enjoyable summer camp experiences I had too as a, as a kid. So one of the, I'm curious, uh, uh, does your, 
does the work allow you to go back to the campgrounds itself and do kind of the, more ethnography research there? Because some of the some of the things for me are we're actually just getting out in some of these wooded spaces and and in my these these just gorgeous elements that I know pandemic aside, it's still places that I'd I'd love to just go hang out at <laughs> and reflect and have a campfire. <laughs> you know, so do you get to do you get to go to the camp while you're doing this work? Yeah, not so much in 2020, yeah. uh, <laughs> although I did get a chance to go out. And I was doing a, uh, a staff training session earlier this year, and I did get a chance to go out and wear a mask and, and do some staff orientation work, which, which was a, a blast. Um, but yeah, reconnecting with the camps is such an important part of this. So we're starting to build a brand, uh, a friend of mine with me called Shout Camp, uh, which is we have, we have a vision of going to different camps and, and taking pictures and connecting the people and ideas within yep. the summer camp space. There's not a lot of competition. You know, the, the, the customer bases are very loyal. So once you acquire a camper who comes to your <laughs> camp, it's very easy to, to get them to come back the next year. Um, so there's no reason they shouldn't be all connected and sharing, sharing stories and sharing songs and sharing best practices for how to operate. Um, so that's what we hope to do. And yeah, you have to do that by visiting. So I hope to do more of it once the, uh, conditions of the world let up a little bit. Right, right. Uh, so one of the, the topics that I, I cover with, with guests is just kind of the notion of advice and kind of curious um, either, uh, and it doesn't have to be an either or, right, but like either good advice that you received from a mentor uh, growing up. And the flip side is, kind of, as I steal from Austin Cleon's Steal Like an Artist, a lot of times when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So sometimes what's advice you wish you would have had earlier or, and, or what's good advice you received uh, throughout your life. And I know we talked about your math teacher at one point, but yeah, yeah, there was, um, when I was a wide eyed data scientist at Capital One, right? Day one, month one, week one of my, of my tenure there, I was impressed by a, at the time, 27 year old executive who had uh, grown up with Capital One. He came in just at the perfect time, but you know, he earned it, right? He wasn't there yeah. just because of timing. He, was, he should have been a 27-year-old executive. Um, one of the most inspiring people that I ever met. And he knew before these words were popular, but he knew how to create an, an innovative culture. He knew inherently in his soul how to motivate people to, to innovate. And two simple words that he used to say all the time have stuck with me now for 40 or sorry, 24 years. Yeah. And that's make offers. And I didn't quite get it at first. I was following orders, right? For years and years and years, even, you know, I probably made offers in there, but it wasn't yeah. part of my core until, you know, there was this awakening I had. I was following a leader around taking notes and delivering what he wanted me to do right for six months. And eventually he came to me and he said, what do you want? What are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? He said, what are you doing? What's your agenda? What do you want this place to be? Right. He, he coached me back to those two simple words, make offers, right? Just tell me what you want to do. Right. And that was something I built into the culture that we tried to build at Transamerica, particularly in my department, which is if you see a project, or a person that you want to be associated with, go make an offer, right? It could be as simple as, hey, I know how to build spreadsheets. I'd love to sit, and, sit in on your meetings and maybe build you a better spreadsheet. What do you think, right? And by doing that, you start to associate yourself with the things that you find a passion for, right? Because you're only going to make offers on things that you're passionate about. <laughs> right. And with, in a short, very short period of time, if you make enough offers, you'll find your entire body of work has migrated over to this brand new world that you've created for yourself. And it is the innovator's path, right? Just to make an offer, follow it. Um, yeah, I wish I'd known a lot earlier what that actually, the power of that, those two words. I heard it from day one in the corporate world. I didn't start following it for probably six or seven years. That's, that's great. That's one of the themes from folks I've talked to too, is like, it's interesting on some good advice that we get, how 
over time, we continue to unpack it and really appreciate like, how profound it was. Uh, and sometimes early, it's almost just a head scratcher. Like you, you can almost ignore it. And then, and then it continues to reveal itself. So I, I love the idea of make offers. Yeah, I saw it cynically at first, right? I'm like, oh, they just want to get more out of me, right? They already gave me a full, a full plate of work. Now they're telling right. me to make offers on other stuff I want to work with. Yeah. But no, it wasn't cynical at all. It was empowering. It was, it was this idea of, hey, follow. Follow the breadcrumbs. Follow the trail to where you want to be in your career. And the only way you're going to do that is by inserting yourself into stuff that you're, you're truly interested in. Um, I saw some attempts at it at times that people would say things like, can you include me in that? And I would have to say, no, that's not an offer, <laughs> right? Just simply wanting to be involved in something isn't good enough. You actually have to insert yourself and say, I'll, you know, I'll carry the load for a little bit here if you'll let me, right? I, I will right, pick right. up the pieces that you're dropping and I will hand them to you as you drop them if you will let me, right? And eventually you start to get inserted into whatever that thing is and you start to become part of it. That's great. Uh, so yeah, any advice that you have for, for listeners who might be in, intrigued in, in trying to make a career out of innovation or doing more in the innovation or entrepreneur space? Yeah, great question. Um, it's a hard career path to define. I won't say it's hard to do. I will, because you know, they're all hard to do. <laughs> right. right. It is hard to define. You're, very few programs that you can go to school for that you're going to earn an innovation credential that is sought after by employers. I don't see that, right? I don't see employers saying, I want an innovator from college. I just, I don't see it. Stanford Design School may be the exception, right? Where employers may be seeking out Stanford Design School graduates, and that's right. fine. Um, outside of that, if you want to be an innovator, the best place to do it is from inside of whatever organization you're in. You start making offers. You start establishing your, your reputation as an innovator. Become known as the person that can get things done despite how the organization is organized. And then suddenly you are the innovator, right? Those are the people that get chosen. It's the people who have shown some ability to get other things done. Right. If you don't have that ability, you've got to build the muscle, right? No one's going to just say, hey, I want you to innovate now, right? It doesn't happen that way. So you have, it, it, you're chosen because you have this resilience or you have this unsettled feeling that something's not right and I have to fix it. Um, so follow those, you know, when you, everyone gets that feeling. So just follow it, make the offer to fix it and suddenly you'll be innovating. And I think that's the best way to grow is inside of an organization that's, that's budding and innovation discipline. If you're there when that starts, you know, the sky's the limit. Thank you. And Aaron, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to, to have you here. Thanks, Matt. It was, it was great to be here. I love talking shop, as you know. And uh, if you'd like me back in a year or two, I'd love to come back. Absolutely. 